Okay, here we go. Uh, March 4th, 2012, lecture discuss- discussion, excuse me, number 59 on the book of Romans. Uh, now, for those uh, of you who are intermittent and for those who follow along on the Internet, I should begin by making you aware that the last couple of weeks I've been rummaging around in the subject of the intermediate state once again. And I'm doing that, the intermediate state, to define it. It's the state uh, for believers in Christ whose bodies have experienced or succumbed to or dissolved into physical death and are therefore awaiting resurrection. That is called the intermediate state. Now, some are not awaiting resurrection to eternal life. Some are awaiting resurrection to uh, eternal death, if you will, the revelation uh, second death. And I'm repeating much of this topic uh, again because I have been made aware recently of how fragile the contemporary church has become as it pertains to the event of physical death, Um, mostly recently. And it worried me when I found out that we're not doing well on this subject as a church, as Christians. The inability, what, what crossed my desk was the inability of the overwhelming majority of Christians to reason themselves or for others uh, to get through the physical death process from a biblically sound uh, position. Um, And if you can't do that when physical death comes to you, uh, you will be crippled. And so that's so important. Much of, you know, even even being able to set aside the biblically sound position, that's difficult, I'll give you that. But you should be able to at least utilize some philosophical logic and reasoning. And I'm finding that that is a, a, a void in the church. It's just not here anymore, in my experience. could be Anchorage, but I don't believe so, because I get on the, uh, I go and track our Internet sites every now and then to see comments and to uh, read what other people have said. And I find the church is wholly unprepared to explain the process of biblical death from any perspective, much less uh, the biblical perspective. And, of course, uh, add to that, very few can fluently apply quantum physics, which, uh, as I mentioned in the announcements, that's simplified for you in this cartoon. That's what this is, is quantum physics. It's the theological implications of subatomic diameter, which means essentially this, that you are 99% empty space. You have no mass if it's condensed. You're a grain of sand. You're mostly water, hydrogen and oxygen. And so how is it that a physical process can be interpreted into a mental property? That becomes very important as you discuss death when your physical process is essentially a grain of sand or your physical mass. Okay? So... Uh, that's why I wanted you to take this thing and, and show it to every child uh, in the sphere of influence that you have in, in every adult. It's written for children. That's quantum physics for children. And sadly, I'm finding that quantum physics for adults is at the child level. And that's a, that's a, just a disaster. That is why the church is mocked today. It is mocked politically. You obviously can see that. You hold any biblical position at all, they assume what? That you can't defend it. Are they right? Yes. We seem to go out and find the most illiterate biblical people we can, and we make them the most prominent defenders of the faith. That's our style. And no wonder we're getting brutalized out there. 
Uh, let me be political for a second. I'm hardly ever, I don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> you know, that's not true, don't you? But we probably, for the first time in the history of this country, are going to have nominees from both parties, and neither one is going to believe that Christ is the Creator God. Neither nominee. And most, and, and, but both of them will say that they're Christian. With, unbeknownst to them, John 8:24. You must believe I am or you will perish in your sins. You must believe Jesus Christ is the I am creator of all things. So you will perish in your sins. Neither one of these men that are likely to be the nominees have any idea that verse is in the Bible or have no idea what it means. First time in my lifetime. So what's that mean for us? I think first time in history that that's the case. What's that mean for us? That's right. Pop popcorn, baby. Sit back and watch. Things are going to get interesting. I, I'm going to say, let me get even more off the wall so people, you can hear the internet people clicking off my video or audio as we, as I speak. I think Netanyahu is going to move on Iran within a very short time. If I had to, if I had to put your money on it, I would say within the next 30 days, he's going to hit those nuclear facilities in Iran. He's going to do it before the election. Why? That is when his opportunity to have the most support from both candidates is at its highest. And so he knows that that's his only hope, I believe. He's a smarter man than I. And I can see him do it. Plus, what will happen to the price of gasoline when he does it? It'll bounce exactly where they want it. It'll go up to eight, nine, ten dollars a gallon for a brief period, if not for a long period. Remember, the, the political class in this country are not upset that gas prices are high. They're upset that you don't like it yet. And they would be perfectly content with European gas prices because that restricts your mobility and that restricts your freedom. That's what this is all about, eventually. Get everybody into cities, get everybody into mass transit. Remember what God said to Cain. What did he say? Don't go into cities. What did he say to Lot? Don't go down to Sodom. So start being wise and realize what's going on around you. And like I said, popcorn. Am I good at popcorn? I am. Ask Amanda. The other Amanda. I might be the best popcorn maker ever. I know it's true because she calls me on the phone and says, is it popcorn day? Yeah, it's true. I'm brilliant at it. <laughs> okay. So in back to our subject, in the pursuit of literacy or eloquence, if you will, with regard to physical death, uh, that's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to get you to be... Uh, you know, I call you the cliffside battalion sometimes, uh, and, and I'm making sure that every one of you, as much as I can, can get this process of physical death and all the terminology so that you can express it and defend it, and you know what it is, and it's yours. It's not mine. It's not anybody else's. And so when anybody comes to you mourning for death, you have the ability to make that a joyous event and give them hope. And so today, uh, in that pursuit, uh, there's more still. 
uh, terminology and the such, and you have to endure it, and I know it's laborious, I know it's menial, I know it's boring, I get all of that. We have to have it before we go to James 2, but it's a critical thing to know. It's a great weapon. Uh, it's essential that at least your kids, before they go off to college, can defend the, the biblical process of death. Because if they don't, what's, what will happen to them? They'll come back to me in a bag. And they'll be devastated by the uh, academia today. And I, I, I get that very often. So, it's a great weapon. Now, people always want magic power. You know, they watch the TV shows, and, and especially teenagers, they want some magic power. Well, uh, understanding the process that is physical death is real power. It's not fake power. It's the real thing. And it's fantastic. It will change your life and it will change the lives of people around you. Now, along all of that, uh, after last Sunday's lecture, Kathy's son James, and I say Kathy's son James because the Internet people want to know who Kathy is and who James is. They want to know who all of you are. And like I said, there's people in Michigan that might surprise us. Uh, but in any event, uh, they want to know who we are. And today's lecture is pretty much for Kathy's family, in case you wanted to know. But James came up to me and said the following, and I quote, It was not nearly as horrific as I thought. That's what he said after last week's lecture. Now, to be fair, he wasn't referring to the lecture, he was referring to attending the lecture with his newborn twins, but I immediately saw another t-shirt. <laughs> Cliffside Community Chapel, not nearly as horrific as I thought. The order yours now, certain to be a bestseller, but wait, act within the next five minutes, we'll double the offer. Just pay. Five hundred dollars for shipping and processing, right? I, how does that work on people? I don't know. And I know, by the way, I know that battalion is an overly optimistic adjective. Cliffside is more platoon than anything else. But you have to come here to know that, which is why I don't want anybody to come and drive them all away. Okay, to recap, here we go. This is last week's lecture in three minutes or less. See how fast I can do it. Intentionality. I'm going to abbreviate them. Okay, intentionality. I won't. Can you define intentionality? Can you define intelligibility? Okay, I'll, I'll, okay, I won't. I can hear the intelligibility. And you define intelligibility as it pertains to this discussion of the physical process of death. Or, if you will, substance dualism versus monism. Can you define them? If somebody comes to you and says, my, my child just died and I cannot deal with the cessation of existence, that I'll never see them again, what do you say back? You say back, the mind has intentionality. The mind has intelligibility. Reduce intentionality or intelligibility to a physical process. So therefore, what's the implication? What's the progression? Irreducibility. I cannot reduce intentionality and intelligibility, meaning aboutness. Okay, in case you can't define it, 
Intentionality means that when the mind focuses on something, it immediately knows that that something it has, it has an aboutness to it. It's about something. And that data comes in, and that data is then uh, dissected by the mind. It's a physical process, right? But that mind takes that physical process and converts it into something that has meaning, understanding. So you have to be able to explain, where does the meaning come from? Where does the understanding come from? Is it possible for meaning or understanding to be reduced to physical processes like chemical or electrical or atomic, if you will? Is it possible? Can I take a thought and reduce it to a physical process? Is there any physicality to love? So irreducibility. It's been a long time since I've been at a funeral. I have to say that. It's been quite a while. But when I'm at them, Here's what I do. I don't necessarily say it this way because it intimidates people. But I do tell them, if you understand how the mind converts data, if you understand how the mind discerns meaning, if you understand that it can't be reduced to a physical process, if you understand subjectivity, what is subjectivity? You can do this. What is it? Those are four things you have to know to go to a funeral. Don't go to a funeral if you don't know those. Because why? Somebody will come to you for hope and you'll give them goop. Intentionality, intelligibility, irreducibility, subjectivity is knowing about knowing. You know, and you know that you know, knowing about yourself, reflective, reflection upon yourself. Okay, and then emergent, uh, uh, emergentism. What is emer- emergentism? These four... Intentionality, intelligibility, irreducibility, and subjectivity prove that there is no emergentism. Do you get that at least? I should film the audience today. I know it's hard. I know. I get it. Very long words makes you good at Scrabble. Words with friends. People cheat. Just know that. Can you believe it? People will cheat at Scrabble. Emergentism says, the physicalist or the monist says that your mind is emergent from your brain, which means your brain, which is a physical device, is the source. It is the generator of your mind. That cannot be true because of intentionality, intelligibility, irreducibility, and subjectivity, because You cannot reduce your mind to a physical process, and you are therefore in violation of Chronister's first law. Now, I know which says that a physical process cannot produce a non-physical entity. Now, also I want you to know spatially unextended. I don't know if I got into that last week. I hope I did. I think I did. You'll you'll. You'll tell me if I did. Spatially unextended means that your mind has no mass. 
You can't me measure your mind. It has no mass. It can't be reduced physically. It has no charge to it in the sense of an electrical charge. It has no location. I cannot weigh it. It doesn't have an electrical charge. I don't know where your mind is, and that is especially true for who? Seth, yes. I have no idea where his mind is. I couldn't find it if I... Hey, could, it's, there's no way. It's impossible, right? So, there's no location to your mind, and then what else is there not? There's no size. There is no spatial, your mind is spatially unextended, which means it cannot emerge from a physical system. Does that make sense? And if your mind cannot emerge from a physical system, then it is what? Non-physical. Now what? Where did it come from? How did it get there? What's it made out of then? It's not made out of a physical property. And by the way, how much physical property do you really have, according to the cartoon? You love your physicalness. You are so sure your physicalness is significant. You are so proud of your physical stuff. You have a container for all your physical stuff called the garage. Now you have to build a garage for the car. So you need a garage for your stuff, and then you need a garage that can actually be the garage. Now, the rest of the lecture from last week. The physicalists will say, now these are the monists, this is the evolutionists. These are people who believe that you are, per, you are solely a physical process. And upon the death of the physical process, your mind will cease to exist. That's monism. One physical process. No supernatural substance that is different from a physical substance, which is dualism. The physicalists will say that the dualists cannot explain the condition of the physical brain being predominant. What do I mean by that? You were here last week. You could go ahead and yell it out because why? If I keep telling you what's going to happen, I'm going to get really good at telling you. What are you going to get? Really bad at listening. So at least answer it in your head. The monist will say that the dualist cannot explain the fact. It's a fact that the condition of the physical brain is predominant with respect to the quality of mental events. What do I mean by that? I mean your skills, your aptitude, your memory, your processing, your attention. Attention. Thank you. Logic, reasoning, and personality. Those are dependent upon the condition of the physical brain. So if you have a brain injury or a brain disease severely impacts your mental expression, your cognitive functions... If your cerebral integrity is, is affected uh, physically, then your cognitive functions seem to disintegrate. The physicalist declares that that fact is evidence of emergentism. And you have to be able to defeat that argument. Is it difficult? It is not difficult. Can you defeat it? Yes. Well, it does in the sense that the physicalist says that you're, the condition of your brain, so if you have a brain injury, 
your mental capacities are affected by that, your mental properties are affected, and they say, therefore, that's evidence that the brain is the, um, is the generation of the mind. And that's why I went into the discussion on, I just used the analogy of the guy with the guitar, or the guy with the trumpet, or the guy with the piano. Uh, if the trumpet, if the bell of the trumpet is crushed, the trumpeter is not going to play well. If the guitar neck is broken or the strings are out of tune, the music will not seem musical. Is the musician any less musical? No, the physical instrument has been affected. I can prove to you that the mind is not a physical substance. So therefore, I have to deal with how does it interact with the physical brain. Okay, then they will say that explaining that, you have to explain the condition of the physical brain as, as predominant to the quality of mental events. You must be able to do that, or you're going to run into that everywhere you go, certainly in every college class you take. And then the law of conservation of energy, which says that energy cannot be created or destroyed. And so you must explain what's called dualistic interactionism, right? How is it that I have the mind interacting with the brain in such a way that is not in violation with the law of conservation of energy. And, and then ultimately causation. How the mind interacts with the brain. See, that's what we're talking about. How the mind causes the brain to do things. How the mind is able to interpret physical processes and turn them into intelligibility. Meaning... Because all the mind sees is what? What's it see? If you want to use the word see. What is the mind doing when it watches the brain? If you want to use the word watch. What is going on in the brain? Physical activity. What's it look like? We know what it looks like now. What's it look like? It's electrical or chemical. We have neurons, right? I have enough nurses in here, you've seen all the MRIs on the brain. You know that in a teenage brain, nothing is on. You know that. That's the truth. Don't be mad at them. It doesn't turn on until when? The logic and the risk assessment, the reasoning capability in a teenager is not activated. Not. It doesn't work. What works? The central stem. That's it. What's that control? Emotion. That's all they've got. That's why they like loud bass music and drums. You can completely control them, take all their money, and make them wear stupid clothes. All you need is a bass guitar and a drummer. That's been going on for centuries. Okay? Who do you think buys Lady Gaga stuff? Who does that? Somebody without a brain that's functioning. That's obvious. There's your proof. How can you get any more clear than that? Huh? <laughs> and yes, I intentionally call her Lady Gaga. I do. Because I think it's funny. And I so desperately want comedy to be part of my, per my presentation. Comedy is hard, right? Dying is easy, as Mike said a few months ago. Okay. 
the brain looks at essentially an electrical chemical uh, process and interprets that and makes meaning out of it. How does it do it? It makes under, it understanding. It has an intentionality. It cannot be reduced. None, these two cannot be reduced. It, it, the, your mind is subject, uh, your subjectivity. You know that you know. You know that you know who you are. Knowing about knowing. How do I get that from a bunch of electrical uh, nerve endings? How does it take, as I said last week, how does it take my feeling the Coke can and turn that into goodness. Because it is. It's goodness. It knows. My mind does. So, that's uh, that and the origin of the soul. How and when does the soul originate? How does the soul grow? What's the process? What material is it made out of? How does it interact with the mind? Dualistic or dualist? I would say dualistic interactionism. And then finally, the last one from last week is numerical differentiation of spiritual objects. Okay, there was last... Uh, how do I di- differentiate? If, if spiritual objects have no mass, no charge, no location, no size, how do I differentiate them? And that's, These are the question or the charges, if you will, the, uh, of the physicalists. Those are the physicalists' responses to dualism, substance dualism, and how long did it take me to do that lecture? Again, seven minutes or whatever, maybe ten tops. And all, all of that along with, uh, you, so you're saying to yourself, you could have done that in seven minutes last week? I sat through an hour? Yes. Yes, I'm stretching it out. I am a trained professional. Anyway, all of that that I just said, all of that which is on the board, along with Chronister's second law of the correspondence of the continuity of the soul-spirit and physical re- resurrection. And, yes. But about time? Yes, in the sense that I don't know. Uh, yes, the mind, I would say the mind is in time. But where in time is it is the issue that I would think that you would want to raise. Again, that's going back to spatially unextended. <coughs> and you have to, if you know this stuff, if you run into a physicalist, and as soon as you begin to start going down this list, what will they do? They will leave you alone. It's just like, did the Jehovah's Witnesses knock twice on my door? No, word gets out. They don't come back. Why take me on when you can find a sucker fish? And that's how it works. So this is all about stop being a sucker fish, right? I, I can't tell you what I tell Seth. My job with regard to Seth, ask me after the lecture. I have one thing that I won't allow him to do, that he desperately wants to do. He can't help it. It's not his fault. By the way, does his grandfather love it when I refer to him during the lectures? Yes. Hi, Big E. He thinks it's great. So. Chronister's second law, the correspondence of the continuity of the soul, spirit, and physical resurrection. Or let me say it another way. Chronister's second law says this. Physical body resurrection, by definition, 
Physical body resurrection, by definition, requires the continuing of the soul spirit or the immortality of the soul spirit. Let me say it another way. The mind must survive physical death. The mind must survive the physical death of the body or there is no such thing by definition of body resurrection. We discussed that last week. That's called the continuity of the soul and there's ethical implications to it as well as scientific and we'll keep doing with it, dealing with it, I'm sorry, as we go through. Actually, I sped through it and I'm speeding through it again, sort of. But uh, it keeps coming back. So, now I'm just going to throw some terms out there for you. Uh, We're not going to go through them today so much. A couple of them we will. But this is what's coming up in the weeks to come. Disembodied existence. We'll deal with that today. Human free will. What the impact of your free will, your intentionality, is on uh, on this subject of life after death. The providence of God versus human free will. Uh, we had a terrific uh, amount of mess this year, or this week, right? Uh, we had tornadoes. And lots of people died. Children ripped out of their uh, mother's hands and killed. Horrible stuff. We had a church here whose uh, roof system completely collapsed. And, and, um, and then to read the comments about it. Very discouraging to me. There's nothing like a disaster to bring out biblical illiteracy and a complete misunderstanding of the providence of God and human free will and how they work together. As you've heard me say many times, I have dealt with the mothers whose sons have been killed in war. And they were part of prayer groups. And everybody else's son came home, but not theirs. Our daughter, and they will come to me, the pastor will send them to me, and I will discuss with them the providence of God and human free will and how it deals with death. Because their first question is, is why didn't my prayers get answered? Why didn't he listen to me? Why did my child die? Their child live. God hates me. He didn't hear my prayers. I didn't pray loud enough. I didn't have, I wasn't in the right prayer position. I didn't wear the right prayer clothing. I didn't say it in the right order. I didn't sign the document properly. That is biblical illiteracy. That is done by the church in order to get control of you so they can get your money. But it is not sound. That's why the providence of God and human free will have to be discussed along with the existence of evil along with the hypostatic union. Because when you look at Christ and you begin to look at yourself, you are, a, you are a physical component and a spiritual component. But he also, he adds a physical component to a spiritual component. His, the hypostatic union is, is, is up here. It's a tremendous thing to think about. But you, have, you must think about it as you deal with, uh, with uh, this design that he has for us. Ontological kenosis. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but it will. Ontological kenosis. That is the kenosis position of uh, Philippians uh, 2.7 that says that Christ set aside his deity. Let me say again, as 
softly as I can. Christ cannot set aside his deity. It's impossible. Stop it. Stupid. There. Okay? I hope I didn't offend anybody in the internet audience. Everybody here is not offended. That ontological kenosis has to be dealt with because it has polluted the church to the point where the church can't function with regard to death anymore. And doesn't function. Our, 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 our funerals are disastrous. They're just pits of crud. All of them? No. There are some, I'm sure, that I don't know about. But everyone I find. And then, uh, again, now we'll have to define life. What is life? Can you define life? Walk into your biology class. Ask your biology professor to define life. Give me a definition of life. He cannot do it. Why not? He has no physicalist position that will define life. Life cannot be defined physically. It must be defined spiritually. There is no definition of life. What is life has escaped the scientific community. Am I surprised by that? No. Because uh, the scientific community ignores the law of biogenesis. So we end up with the causation of life. What causes life? What is the definition of life? And then the intrinsic nature of physical space, which is your cartoon. That is called the intrinsic nature of physical space, or what I call, again, the theological implications of subatomic diameter. Can't say that enough to you so that you begin to understand it. And those are all things that hopefully you are not, are not completely foreign to you, and hopefully you have discussed the progressions of the subjects. And if you haven't, we're going to do that as best we're able. Okay. Chronister's second law of the continuity of soul-spirit is met every time. Every time I do it, I get incoming rounds, if you will. Both from the physicalists, who, who hate me for it, and also from the biblical holists. Now let me put whole, biblical holism, W-H-O-L-I-S-M, or holists, they call themselves. Not holy, whole, as in a whole apple, if you will. So... Both the physicalists and the biblical holists, uh, they come after me whenever I do this or come after anyone who has uh, any idea of the continuity of the soul spirit and the implications therein. So they shoot at us from every direction, uh, some from outside, the physicalists, and then the biblical holists, call the, they say that they're Christians and they'll try to kill us from within. One thing you can count on Christians, they will attack from the rear. So these two groups have some commonality. Why would they be allies? Why would they attack the continuity of the soul-spirit? The physicalist, here's why. The physicalist claims to believe that, the, that only physical properties exist. Notice how I said that. The physicalist claims to believe. It will tell you that he believes that only physical properties exist. And upon the death of the body, the person ceases to exist. That's classic physicalism, classic monism, cessation of existence. And thus, physicalism is hopelessness. Absolute hopelessness. There's no purpose to life. There's purposelessness. There's no, it's random. And then uh, physicalism descends quickly, progresses quickly into hedonism, self-worship, because there is nothing else to worship but oneself. Hedonism is a dis- 
destructive in, in, in every, every definition, every facet. So it's very important to note the, pro, the progressions. I always tell the physicalists, so when are you going to be a serial killer? They look at me like, well, yeah, that's the natural progression. Physicalism becomes narcissism, becomes hedonism, becomes violent, and begins killing. That's what it does. Every time. Why not? Let me just give you the ethical considerations. I see two beautiful babies. If I define them based on their physical capability, how much value do they have? If there is no spiritual component to them, and if the spiritual component is not predominant, the physical component is not by how I measure their personhood. If I say that that baby's personhood is dependent on their physicality, what can I do to them? Ethically, they're inferior. What will I do to people like me, the old? I'm inferior. I don't have, if I'm defined by my physical, uh, physicality, I'm inferior. And immediately I become, uh, I, set a, I set a system of superiority to inferiority. Does that remind you of anybody? Yes. All slaughters are based on physicalism. All of them. And they'll come back and they'll say, religion kills lots of people. Yes, religion did kill lots of people. But it's an amateur compared to the physicalists. Mao, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot. Those were the professionals. In any event, I define those children spiritually, and their spirituality is equal to mine, isn't it? So all persons are equal. That's the ethical positions in a nutshell, right off the bat. Which one would you rather have govern you? The spiritual position or the physical position? Okay? The biblical holist believes that the spirit soul dies with the body. So you can see how it's very consistent. The physicalist says there is no spirituality in the death of the body. The biblical holist believes that the spirit soul exists, but it dies with the body, or it goes into unconsciousness, and it awaits the resurrections. And then they will teach you this, the biblical holist will, that only believers who believe biblical holism are resurrected. The unbelievers cease to exist. So for... Another few hundred bucks, we can guarantee your resurrection. That's annihilationism, by the way. Only the, the select, only the ones that go to our particular denomination, those are the true believers. They have the full gospel. you got a third of a gospel or an eighth of it, always seven-sixteenths of a gospel. You're not going to make it, baby, unless you divvy up some money here really fast. I am the arbiter of how much gospel you have. See me later. I'll do an assessment of your salvation for a small processing and handling fee. I rant sometimes, don't I? Anyway, sometimes the biblical holist view incorporates the false teaching of soul sleep, and that's somewhat popular because it allows a compromise between physicalism and emergentism. In other words, uh, the soul sleep says there is a soul, but it goes to sleep, and it has to be woken up, okay? As opposed to continuity of the soul, which I say, if you don't have continuity of the soul, you have no physical resurrection, no true resurrection, right? So many Christians are really desperate to compromise with emergentism, 
they want to compromise with monistic philosophies because they want to be accepted by academe, right? Because academe requires physicalism to be true. So if you want to be accepted, you want to get a doctorate in biology, you cannot get a doctorate in biology unless you are a monist, unless you believe in emergentism. And so Christians, some Christians are ready to abandon substance dualism, anything. They'll abandon everything that allow them to be included into the realm of the educated elite. A.W. Pink, another man like M.R. DeHaan, who I, I studied everything he wrote. The same for M.R. DeHaan. This is what he said. I will be thought a fool for Christ. He was content in that he, he, what he meant by that is he would die having a steadfast interpretative literal truth position of Scripture. He would be content in knowing that we have been created, placed into a creation by the Creator, and when we die, our inve- inevitable physical death, our immortal soul spirit goes into the presence of the Creator of all things, Jesus Christ. John 1, 1 through 1, 4. That's the definition of I will be thought a fool for Christ. And the physicalists, they loathe that. They have a burning hatred for it. That um, It's without equal when you confront it. And monistic physicalism controls academia, as you know. And those who will be thought of as a fool for Christ need not apply to academia and thus, many are eagerly trying to compromise. And hence, we find this soul sleep and the like. The dead in an unconscious intermediate state. Do you understand what I mean by that? I'm going to go fast now. The dead in an unconscious intermediate state. What it means is that your body is dead, your soul is unconscious, unless you're an unbeliever. Then you go into annihilation. Or, if you're an unbeliever, you're resurrected and then you go into annihilation. So there's an annihilation either way. God will take his time. He won't annihilate you in physical death. He'll resurrect you and then send you into annihilation. So make sense of that for me. And let me know how it did. But in order to get this, uh, we're going to go back into Ecclesiastes uh, 9, 3 through 6. And by the way, I can do this with every single one of their scriptures that they will throw at you. And that's why it's so important that you go through this process. Whatever they bring to your door, I, I, can, do the, I can tear it to pieces. Is that because I am so smart? No. It is because they are so wrong that a child can blow them out. They have an indefensible position. It takes little or no time to, to, to dismember them, philosophically, if you will. Not, it does take a chainsaw. Never mind. Alaska humor. Here we go. We have to go back to Ecclesiastes. This is where they go all the time. Ecclesiastes 9, Ecclesiastes 3, um, And so, uh, this is where we have living dogs and dead lions under the sun. Because Ecclesiastes 9 is often used by the soul sleepers as proof of an unconscious intermediate state. So let's read it really fast. I've got to go fast. This is an evil that is done under the sun. And one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the son of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But 
For him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And that is where they say, okay, that's unconsciousness. The dead know nothing. Unconsciousness, right? And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy perish, have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. They say, okay, that's, a, that's proof of unconsciousness. Now, uh, immediately you should notice this is not soul sleep. Because it starts with under the sun and it ends with under the sun. That is the context of the passage. And under the sun means the physical reality, the physical life on earth. And the living dog... Uh, is still alive on earth and still has hope for salvation. The dead lion is dead and has no physical capability and has, and has no future reward. How do you get a future reward? What is the future reward? Matthew 6.16, Luke 6.23. What is the future reward? It's eternal life. The living dog has a chance for eternal life. The, the dead lion does not. It has nothing to do with soul sleep. And it is about salvation. Notice the living dog knows it will die. For the living dogs know that they will die. The dead lion knows nothing. But the dead lion knows nothing. So obviously, knowing you will die is the opposite of knowing nothing. And all that remains is to define knowing that you will die. What does that mean? Well, it's in the context of under the sun. It's in the context of no more reward. It's in the context of better to be a living dog than a dead lion. For sale now, softball jerseys, Cliffside Community Chapels, living dogs. Is this about soul sleep? No. Is it about an unconscious intermediate state? No. It's talking about judgment. Read the conclusion of Ecclesiastes 12.14. It's about judgment. The living dog knows that the coming judgment comes at physical death. He knows it. The living dogs can choose eternal life. The dead lions have made their choice and they have no more reward. Okay? So that's, uh, again, look at Hebrews 9.27. Now, every single one of them that they give, and I'll go over them next week as much as I can, every single one of them say that, uh, that they assign to soul sleep or unconsciousness, um, they all follow the same patterns. Psalm 6.5 says the dead have no remembrance of God. What is remembrance of God? Remembrance of God is thankfulness. There's no thankfulness among the dead. Who will give you thanks, it says in 6.5. Who will give, in death there is no remembrance of you, Psalm 6.5 said. Well, who's the you there? That's God. There's no thankfulness. There's no remembrance in those who have died in sin, the living or the dead lions. Whenever the Bible talks about sleep with respect to death, whenever it does it, it is always talking about the body, never the soul. Never. Sleep is a picture, our physical sleep. When you sleep tonight, know that it is a picture for the believer. And by the way, soul sleep only is identified with believers. I'm sorry, I said that badly. The symbol sleep is only given to believers. 
It is never used of unbelievers. Unbelievers never sleep with respect to death in the Bible. Only believers sleep. That's why I'm saying to you it is a picture for you. Sleep is the suspension of physical activity, not the suspension of mental activity. He tells us that your, your physical activity is a temporary suspension. Sleep is a picture for believers. Never is it said about unbelievers. Only for believers. Only believers sleep in Scripture. As you know, there is no suspension of activity for the mind. Soul sleepers like to say the body cannot function without the soul spirit, and the disembodied soul spirits cannot exist without a body. That's what they like to say. What, how do you respond to that? How about the angelic realm? In all of Scripture, no one will ever read of a soul spirit being something. What? You will never read of a of sleep as it applies to death. Go be assigned to a believer. You'll never find that in the Bible. To a believer, I'm I get tired. Gotta stop again. You will never read of sleep being assigned to an unbeliever. Sleep is for believers. It is a picture of resurrection. You will also never read of a soul spirit being resurrected. Only bodies are resurrected. Soul spirits are never resurrected in Scripture. Only the body is said to be resurrection. Resurrected. Resurrection applies only to bodies, never to soul spirits. Okay? So whenever somebody comes to you and says, when you die, you will sleep, you say back, the Bible only says believers sleep. And sleep only applies to physical bodies. And resurrection only applies to physical bodies. My mind is not ever resurrected. My mind continues to exist, continuity of the soul. And what will they do? Thank you. Here's our tract. We will never come back. Next week I will go through all of these others just like I did Ecclesiastes 9. You've got to know the difference between a living dog and a dead lion. And if you take the process of that, Ecclesiastes 9, and I know I did it really fast, you apply it to all the rest of them, you will be fine. All of them will open up for you and you will get through it. And you won't be stunned by it anymore. So next week, that's what we'll do. Let's rise and be dismissed.